Welcome to the Healthy Hair Podcast. Your host, Dr. Amy Brenner, is a board-certified OBGYN with additional certifications in functional and integrative medicine. This podcast is meant to help women find reliable, relevant information to help them feel better, look better, and live better. Here, you will hear in-depth information about hormones, sexual medicine, aesthetics, cosmetic gynecology, and functional medicine. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Healthy Her. And I hope today that you find this really helpful. Um, We're going to talk about one of the culprits for having bad periods or even some pelvic pain. You may have heard of fibroids or tumors in your uterus. I don't really like to call them that, but sometimes patients come in and tell me I have tumors in my uterus or cysts in my uterus or the medical term for it is called lyo myoma. So today I have somebody really special. I've been friends with her for 25 years. Uh, I did my residency with her in Louisville and she's a practicing OB-GYN in Louisville. And her name is Dr. Anna Feitelson. So welcome, Anna. Thank you so much. And yes, we have known each other for a very long time. And I look forward to talking with you today. Yeah, so tell us about yourself and your practice and where people can find you. So I am in a group practice here in Louisville, Kentucky, about an hour and a half southwest of UL in Cincinnati. Uh, There are about 12 of us in this practice. We do both obstetrics and gynecology, and I do both obstetrics and gynecology at this point. And um, we do pretty much work out of just one hospital, which is a hospital called Norton Women and Children's Hospital here in Louisville, Kentucky. And... um, we're pretty busy. Yeah. So for our guests, some people might not know what fibroids are. Um, just want to give everybody a little high level overview of what we're talking about today. So fibroids, they're kind of like these rubbery, non-cancerous tumors that grow in the muscle of the uterus. I don't know if anyone out there has ever played jacks when they were little, but that little ball that bounces, a fibroid <laughs> has a very similar consistency to that. And they can range in all sizes from like the size of the seed all the way up to the size of looking like she might be several months pregnant. They are exceedingly common, like up to 70% of women will have them, but a lot of women won't be symptomatic because of them. Yeah. So you and I, we learned about fibroids probably from day one of residency. And now 25 years later, we actually probably have a a lot more to talk about than what we had to offer people 25 years ago. So that's kind of cool. There are so many more things to offer. It used to be that pretty much all we had was, yep, you can have a hysterectomy. Let's sign me up. And that's what we got. But now there are so many more tools in the chest. Yeah. So what symptoms um, do your patients come in with that you're suspicious of fibroids? And I would imagine your patients in in Louisville, an hour and a half uh, south, pretty similar to what we're experiencing here in Cincinnati. Or or now we call it Wincinnati. Did you know that? Wincinnati after the Bengals. That's pretty awesome. I must admit I was disappointed that they did not win the Super Bowl, but it was a really fantastic game. And I think that with Joe Burrows, you guys got something really special that might happen next year. Yeah. You know what it reminded me of? Like it was like the this leading up to the Super Bowl, 
is it reminded me of what it felt like living in Louisville kind of at Kentucky Derby time. It's like Christmas, like the city shuts down, schools are closed, all of that hype. That's what it was like living here in Cincinnati recently. A super fun time. That is for sure. (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) Anyway, so what what do people come in saying that makes you suspicious that somebody might have fibroids? There are actually several different things they might come in with. The most common thing is bleeding. They'll usually come in, their periods are heavier, they're longer. Um, They might come in because their primary care doctor checked their blood level and they have low blood or anemia. So their periods are just pretty darn heavy and much longer. That's the most common symptom that they'll have. Or they might come in because they're feeling like what we, call, we might call bulk symptoms. So there's, they might have pressure in their pelvis. Um, they might have like, difficulty urinating or urinary frequency. So they go that they might pee frequently. Or sometimes they even have constipation because those fibroids might be pushing on their colon on the backside. Mm-hmm. A little bit less frequently, they might come in having pain. I don't see that very frequently at all. I see that more commonly in women who are pregnant who have fibroids that might grow really quickly. And then also kind of uncommonly is it might have some fertility effect on them if there's like a fibroid that's inside the cavity and distorting it. But those right. are those two are less common than the bleeding and the bulky symptoms of just things feeling big. Yeah, so sometimes people feel like, I feel like things are falling out. I have so much pressure and they've read about prolapse. And sometimes it can give that same sensation of like, it just feels full and heavy there. Yes, definitely full and heavy. So what is your workup? If somebody comes in and tells you all of these symptoms, what are your next steps? Well, first thing I'm going to do is we kind of listen to what their history is. And like, so women might come in and a lot of women out there might think their period is heavy. And so what, what do I think is a heavy period? Well, generally, if you're going through, you know, more than a pad or a pad or a tampon, maybe more than every three hours, that's a little bit excessive. Or if you're bleeding, so you maybe you're using more than 21 pads or tampons in your week, or you're bleeding more than seven days. So if, this, if a patient gives me that history, I start to think, there might be something else going going on inside of her uterus I need to take a look at. And then a physical exam can sometimes be telling. I got, so we, the basic pelvic exam that women are familiar with that usually comes along with a pap smear, we might feel inside and maybe something feels like there's, you might feel something at the belly button or feel something just a little bit above their pelvis that something feels big and feels full and doesn't feel normal. Like a normal uterus might feel like it's about the size of a lemon are smaller than that. So sometimes the uterus feels like it's the size of a grapefruit or a cantaloupe or maybe even a watermelon. And so that does, that's a big sign that there's something there that's not supposed to be there. Yeah, that's a big difference going from a, a lemon size to a watermelon size. But you and I have both taken out uterus that are literally the size of a watermelon or the uterus is like up to their rib cage. Right. Yes, they look like they are pregnant. They, people around them think they're pregnant. But they're not. They just have these big fibroid tumors inside their uterus. Yeah. Now, sometimes, you know, I've been fooled before. Sometimes I'll do a pelvic exam and it feels like something's enlarged or, you know, the other providers say that, like, you know, enlarged uterus. And then on ultrasound, then we do an ultrasound. You're like, oh, yeah, everything's normal. And then people are like, well, what did you feel during your exam? I assume that happens to you sometimes, too. 
It does. And what I'll frequently tell them is that sometimes it just means that I felt something that was in their colon. So maybe if they had constipation yeah. or maybe they're, maybe they're a little bit more gassy that day and their, their bowel was kind of laying on top of the uterus too. And everything can just feel more full down there on our exams. Yeah. So that happens. I think, yeah. Cause we're pressing just kind of all in the middle. So everything that's in there of a bla a full bladder, a, a full rectum gas in the colon, like sometimes it can fool us. So, yeah, I so you get a, you usually order an ultrasound next. Yes, order an ultrasound because lots of times I'll tell patients just since I left my X-ray vision at home, I will I will <laughs> need to get an ultrasound. And an ultrasound ultrasound is really one of the best things, best tools we have to look at the uterus. It's actually better than a CT scan because it can really show us inside the uterus and the walls of the uterus, and that gives a much better picture of the ovaries as well. So an ultrasound is a great next step for looking for fibroids. So this happens to me all the time is people will go to the emergency room with pelvic pain and they'll usually get a CT scan and the CT scan will just say fibroid uterus follow up with your gynecologist. I, I assume you're getting those referrals too. And then like, but there's no, you know, description more other than you have fibroids, but I don't know. Does that mean it's as big as how you mentioned like a seed or is it as big as a watermelon? Like, I don't know. Right. I get that. I definitely get that, too. And then also, it doesn't even matter because some a lot of times people might have fibroids and when they're small, they're asymptomatic and just having it doesn't change the trajectory of your life at all. It's just an interesting fact that we now know about you. So lots of times we kind of it'd be nice if the CT scan told me how big it was. And lots of times they'll do that, but sometimes they don't. And if they don't, again, that ultrasound can tell me how big it is. And if the patient's not having a lot of symptoms and it's small, then we can just note it in the chart and see if it causes problems years, maybe, maybe it's months, years or never down the road. So the other thing I like about ultrasound is I can really determine like exactly where the fibroids are located. Um, Cause that can also help me determine of a little bit of, you know, what are their options for treatment? Um, do you do ultrasounds in your office? We do do ultrasounds in the office. Yes. And so with that ultrasound, we can figure out, you know, is the ultra is the fibroids. So fibroids can generally be in three places. They might be actually bulging into the cavity, which I touched on a little bit ago from a fertility perspective, but the ones that bulge into the cavity are a little bit more associated with heavier bleeding with periods because they kind of, they increase the, like the surface area inside the uterus, which is the part that bleeds every month. So when you've got that, increased surface area inside that can that can explain their heavier bleeding or they might be in the actual wall of the uterus just making the uterus bigger and bulkier or they might be literally out on like on the outside wall of the uterus i kind of tell people it's almost like mickey mouse ears oh i like that cute so if are you basing where the um fibroid is based on if it is affecting their life and if it's a significant size of does where it where it's located in your uterus like does that matter to you on how you're going to treat it it does matter a little bit on how we're going to treat it um again i from a fertility perspective it's, if it's inside the cavity then they're likely to do better if we if we remove that operatively um, if they're not interested in getting pregnant, then there are some, then sometimes medical management can work for that, but it's, a, I think it's a little bit less effective for working for that. And then, um, 
the ones that are like the Mickey Mouse ears, I feel like those are less likely to cause bleeding issues. They tend to cause more bulk issues. So if the patient doesn't have a lot of symptoms, that one I feel like I can leave more alone. Yeah, I agree. So what what size of fibroids are you saying to patients? Like, you know, I'm not really that concerned about it. I think this is an incidental finding. Probably most, like you mentioned, 70% of women have this versus, okay, this is significant and I think we should do something about it. I think a lot of it goes back to their symptoms um, so that if a woman comes into me, now if a woman comes into me and her uterus is the size of a five or six month pregnancy and she's quote unquote not having these symptoms, I'm actually going to find that hard to believe. And I think when we talk more, I'm going to be able to figure out that she is having symptoms that she just isn't attributing to the fibroids and that she's likely to feel better if we take those out. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if she has, you know, she might even have several fibroids that are maybe two centimeters or three centimeters and her uterus itself might be maybe the size of an eight or 10 week pregnancy, but it's not bothering her yet. So we can watch that or talk about that. Yeah. So there's no like little chart, like, okay, I have this fibroid in this size and this location and you like graph it out of this is what I do. It's, it's not that simple, is it? No, it's not that simple. There's no textbook chapter that says if your fibroid is two centimeters and located in the wall, this is what you do. If it's eight centimeters and located outside the wall, this is what you do. It is not that straightforward. Yeah. It would be nice if it was it was like that. I guess uh, maybe it would be making a, being a doctor a little easier. But uh, um, that's where like seeing somebody like yourself that has 25 years experience makes a difference. Because you can't right, just and really talking to the patient and kind of just kind of figuring out what the patient, how this is affecting her life and what she's looking for. Because in all right. honesty, sometimes they're actually not they're looking for anything with their fibroids. They're looking for me to tell them that actually, you know, we found this on your CT scan in the emergency room for your pain. But actually, it's not a big deal in your life. You can go back out and live your life. But hey, come back for your pap smear next year. Yeah. And that's a whole other discussion is, and again, I just saw somebody this morning who was just in the emergency room for pain and they said they had fibroids. And I'm like, yeah, we just, we got to get more information here. And, you know, and pain is difficult. Like there's a lot of things that cause pain and you might have a two centimeter fibroid, but I'm not really sure that's going to be the cause of your pain versus if we dig deeper and, you know, you have a like a uterus up to your rib cage, like watermelon size. That might be a different story because um, pain is hard. I find bleeding be, to be much easier to treat. Yeah, bleeding, I think, is much easier to quantify. And it's also much easier to prove that something needs to be done. Like a normal hemoglobin or your normal blood counts between about 11 and a half, 11 and a half to 12 and 16. So if you happen to show up in my office and your level is nine, I know you're bleeding heavily. And you can tell me about that, but I have, I have actual proof in front of me that you're bleeding heavily. Um, right. Like I said, pain is much more subjective and it's harder to determine. And there's so many more causes of that pain, particularly in the pelvis. Yeah. And, and yeah, you're right. And cramping and fullness, like it can be the uterus, but it can also be other things in your pelvis, like your muscles or your bowel. So I think right. that one's the bowel tricky. And the bladder frequently, frequently cause symptoms that everyone wants to blame on their ovaries or their uterus, but frequently turns out to be your colon or your bladder. Yeah. So let's get back to the, the fibroids. Is anybody like, or is anybody 
at risk for this? Is there anything that you can do not to be plagued by fibroids or who, who there needs are to several think risk factors? Um, the, the biggest risk factor is actually, so as it turns out, black women are two to three times higher risk of having fibroids than, than Caucasian women are. Um, obesity gives you an increased risk of having a fibroid. So it's one more reason to work on having, to, have, to work on weight loss and a healthy body size. Um, family history is another very common risk factor for fibroids. One that I think is interesting is an increased interval since your last delivery. So when you have children younger, as you get closer to late 30s and 40s, you're at a greater risk for having fibroids because it's been longer since you had kids, as opposed to someone who might have had their kids a little bit later in life, that they have a, a shorter interval since their last pregnancy. Um, alcohol use has been shown to increase your risk of fibroids. I suspect there was a little bit more alcohol use in Cincinnati last night. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and then um, diets that are high in red meat and actually having low vitamin D has been associated with having fibroids as well. well as far as like decreasing your risk, increasing physical activity can, and can decrease your risk. And the Mediterranean diet, which has so many good aspects to it, has been shown to reduce that risk of fibroids as well. Interesting. So there are some things you can do to, you know, which are all good for your, your health of uh, decreasing alcohol, eating healthier, taking some vitamin D, exercising, like those all sound like good, whether it reduces your risk of fibroids or heart disease or cancer. So, right. It's your basic good, healthy living is good for you on so many fronts. Now, does that mean you can't have chocolate or an occasional good glass of wine? It does not. But everything in moderation is better. Yeah. So let's get it. I'd love to know, like, you know, I don't think I don't remember the last time you and I talked about fibroids is because uh, when you and I were in residency, I think our treatment options were abdominal hysterectomy, vaginal hysterectomy. Maybe when we were seniors, people started doing like laparoscopic hysterectomies. I think that did we have anything else at that time? From a surgical perspective, no. And from a medical perspective, we pretty much just had, we can try you on some birth control pills. And that was about it. I think that the, um, the progesterone IUD had just recently come out and they were starting to see that it was helping with bleeding. But um, for the most part, yes, it was hysterectomy, which is why it's the number, it was the number one reason women had hysterectomies. Yeah. While you and I were in residency. And pretty much it was abdominal hysterectomies if for fibroids. Absolutely. Because like, they make things bigger. Yeah. And people stayed in the hospital for what, two, three days back then? Yes. Was that right? Now Am things are so much better. You, can get, you are remembering. Yeah, at least generally at least three days. You know, the yeah. malfunction comes back on day two or day three before they can actually get to go home. Yeah. We weren't doing hysteroscopic resection of fibroids in residency, were we? No, I think we were only doing um, rollerball ablations at that point. Okay. All right. Yeah, we weren't doing fibroids, but we were doing the rollerball ablations, mm -hmm. which is which is crazy. Like people out of residency right now don't even know what we're talking about when I tell them how we used to do endometrial ablations. Yes, the new ones are so nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so uniform. 
Yeah. So let's talk. We we have hysterectomies, but now we have different ways of doing hysterectomies. So I want to elaborate on that. If somebody chooses like, look, I just want it out, like just have a hysterectomy, like, you know, and if somebody has big fibroids, that might be the, that's usually the way I go. Right. And so big fibroids, again, if, if you're going to have big fibroids and they're going to be up to you, like you're going to look like you're nine months pregnant, you're still going to end up with an open procedure. But these days, if you've got one that's really somewhere that's kind of around your belly button or maybe even a little bit smaller, or just a little bit bigger, you can actually, you can get away with some minimally invasive or laparoscopic surgery. Um, you might need to have what's called a little mini lap. So that may be a five or six centimeter incision kind of down like where you might have a C-section incision where we can then kind of basically cut those fibroids up into little pieces and bring them out through your belly. And even with that little five to six centimeter incision, you can still go home the same day. Yeah. Most of my hysterectomies do go home the same day. Are you doing the same thing in Louisville? Yes, 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 yes. I love sending people home the same day. Yeah. So especially when COVID happened, um, kind of the hospital was like, you can only do hysterectomies if they go home the same day. So we kind of tweaked our anesthesia protocol and kind of things like that. And since then, every single person has gone home the same day versus before, I would say it was like 80, 20, 80% would go home, 20% spend the night. Now everybody goes home. Yeah, I pretty much have everybody go home as well. I pretty much I tell patients there's kind of three three scenarios where you might you might not go home immediately, but I might send you home later on that night. So it may be in the recovery room, we can't control your pain. Or maybe in the recovery room, you have really bad nausea and vomiting from post-anesthesia complications. And so you might end up staying a few extra hours or so, maybe most of the day for us to manage that. Or maybe at the time of your surgery, just something, for some reason, I just want to watch you overnight just to make, make sure everything is, is stable. But for mm-hmm. the most part, you're going to go home the same day. Yeah, I agree. I, I like spelling it out that, that way, though. Here's three reasons why you might stay. But Yeah, I tell yeah. them all that. Yeah, that's nice. I'm getting some good tips from you. I like that. <laughs> I like the Mickey Mouse ears for um, subserosal fibroids. I like it. Okay, so we got hysterectomy as an option. What other options do you give your patients? For, well, as far as like other surgical options, so you could yeah. have like if you're if you're younger and you want you still want to have kids, then obviously you do not want to have a hysterectomy because then you're not going to have any future more any more children in the future. So there's a procedure called a myomectomy. And a myomectomy is a procedure where we actually go in and we specifically take out the fibroid itself. And so the uterus back together. And so yeah. those can be done. Those can be done laparoscopically. Those can be done as an open procedure. And then those can even be done through a camera inside the uterus, kind of through the vagina or something called hysteroscopic, depending on where those fibroids happen to be located. So I'm sure you have the same as a lot of women that are done with childbearing um, will ask me, well, can't you just take the fibroids out? And how do you address that when people say, I don't want to have a hysterectomy. Can't you just take the fibroid out? What I tell them is that the, hyster- the hysterectomy itself is, a, is actually a much more straightforward procedure. And the, ch- the, the fibroids also, fibroids can recur. So if we take out, if we go to the trouble and all the risk of having your fibroids removed, and then they recur, you've got, then you're going to have to have another surgery down the road. 
and having your fibroids removed, like a myomectomy, also increases the risk of things getting stuck together inside. So you can have things called adhesions, which then makes your future surgeries more complicated. Whereas a hist- if, you're, if you're done having kids, a hysterectomy is the definitive procedure because your uterus is not going to grow back. Correct. Yeah. Sometimes that's hard for patients. At least I, I don't know. That's exactly what I say. But sometimes it's, you know, maybe I'm not doing a good job of explaining some of the complications and recovery of myomectomy because you're absolutely right. And it is kind of weird to think that a hysterectomy is actually an easier surgery for you and I to perform compared to a myomectomy. Yes. Yeah, I agree. But you're right. Most people that have had a myomectomy in the past end up with a hysterectomy because they always grow back. Right. So, or, or, or when you have a myomectomy, you frequently don't just have one fibroid that we're removing. You frequently have three or four or five, and we'll remove the two or three big ones. But the little ones, we, I mean, you, you don't want to chop up someone's uterus into like little pieces of hamburger and then have to put it back together. And so then you're leaving them with a couple of other fibroids mm-hmm. that can then grow again. Yep. So it's not a perfect surgery. Um, no, it's not. Ever, do you ever refer to people for a uterine artery embolization? I do. I do that for a lot of patients. Those patients who really want to keep their uterus um, and who also don't have a, a fibroid that's bulging into the cavity of the uterus. Um, so if you've got a fibroid that's bulging into the inside cavity of the uterus and you get embolization, sometimes that fibroid itself can, it, it's kind of a hard to conceptualize, but that fibroid, when it loses its blood supply, can maybe come loose and then can be stuck in that cavity and try to be born through the cervix, which causes a lot of cramping, a lot of pain, and can actually even lead to infection. So the uterine artery embolization is really best reserved for fibroids that are in certain locations and not particularly not bulging a lot into the cavity of the uterus. But the procedure itself is actually really great. Like a good, maybe a good 90% of patients are happy they've had it done. Now about 25% of those will end up having a hysterectomy later on. In fact, I have a patient I just saw yesterday who had her fibroids embolized in 2018 and now she's having bleeding problems again. And so now we're going to move to hysterectomy. But at that yes. point, she was not, she did not, she could not say goodbye to her uterus at that point. Yeah. So for people that don't know this, this isn't a procedure that I do. I imagine it's not a procedure that you do either. No. Yeah. No, it's a procedure done by a radiologist. It's kind of like if anybody's probably heard of a cardiac catheterization. So when you know, your your dad, your mom, your grandma went into went into the hospital and they threaded a catheter through their groin up to the heart. So this is a, something that's threaded through the groin to the blood vessels in the uterus. And with with X-ray and in the in the radiology department, they're able to see where the main blood supply is to these fibroids. And they they put a special chemical in there that essentially blocks the blood supply. So it's like the Hoover Dam. Um, So they block the blood supply of these fibroids. And without a blood supply, the fibroids shrink. And when they shrink, these these patients' bulk symptoms and bleeding symptoms get better over about a six-month period of time. Yeah. So it's nice because it's a, you know, it's an outpatient procedure, but it's, it's not, it's not perfect. Like a hysterectomy is where you'll never bleed again or never have to deal with fibroids again. There's still a chance 
it's not 100% success, successful. Right. Like about 25% will end up with a hysterectomy. So, okay. I mean, you got a three out of four chance that maybe you won't. Um, but a one in a four chance that maybe you will. So I think it, it, for some people, it can buy them some time. For some people, it might, it might avoid a hysterectomy altogether. Um, and for some people, it's, they, they just, they're really ready to be done. And they're, they be, or they need their bleeding to be done soon. Right. Not you know, a few months down the road. The other issue I had is I had a patient recently who wanted that and her insurance said, no, we're not covering it. And it was going to be $60,000. I'm like, oh my yeah. gosh. Like, I think I'll just have a hysterectomy now. Have you had any issues with insurance coverage like that? I have not had anyone tell me that it is not covered. Um, I get a lot of pushback for all sorts of different, like, just different prescriptions that I might prescribe um, from different birth control pills to other medications that you might use to treat fibroids. But I haven't had anybody have issues getting a, a uterine artery embolization from their insurance perspective. Hmm. Interesting. I just haven't had a lot of takers. So that was kind of my last person that was interested in that. And that was the result. And we ended up doing a hysterectomy. I have like a percentage of my patients that I think have a lot of surgical anxiety. And so they're looking for other options that are not surgical. So we'll, so we'll, we'll try the, the, the medical options first, and then we'll talk about these like less invasive options before moving to hysterectomy. Cool. So you brought up like there's now um, and when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, um, I'd ask you because there's a new FDA approved medication specifically for the treatment of fibroids. Um, it's called Orion. Have you used it at all? I have not had a chance to use it at all because it is, it's, it's what I would call it's like little sister, that Oralissa. I've not been able to get that covered. Yeah, um, same. So I feel like that. So. Both of those, those two medicines have the same, like one compound in common that I think it was elagolics or I'm not sure it's elagolics. So they have that, that in common and insurance companies are really giving me a lot of pushback on prescribing that. I've been able to get, I used to be able to give out samples, but now from a COVID perspective, the drug reps are not allowed into the office. So now we have an incredibly limited supply of samples in our office. Yeah. I've only used it and looks really good. Yeah, I've only used it in one in one patient. And uh, what I found um, is that people don't want to take a medication forever, like because it doesn't shrink the fibroids. It just reduces the amount of bleeding with the side effects. So people are like, but it's not going to get rid of my fibroids. Nope. It's just going to decrease your bleeding. And then I would imagine if you stop taking it, like it's going to know, it's going to go back to where it it's is. It's going to come right back. Yeah. I would think that it's a really good bridge. Like for yeah. example, the, I, I have a patient who I'm operating on tomorrow who I saw her back in July, but she had just started a new job and taking off her hysterectomy was not something she was going to be able to do for six months because she was going to have to build up her time. So it seems like it's a good bridge drug that you could use for the short term if it happened to be covered by insurance. Yeah. So that's an issue. Now I did uh, uh, find a specialty pharmacy that can kind of do the prior offs and kind of take away that insurance coverage. Um, I'll have to share that with you, but you're that's right. I very think, interesting. 
Yeah. Um, but I've used it again, just in one patient. It was that exact same thing you mentioned is it just wasn't a good time for her. So we did that for a few months. She actually kind of built up her blood count because she was anemic. So it stopped her bleeding. And then now we have her scheduled for a hysterectomy. So, but On as paper, with every- it looks great. I mean, there's yeah, a, like 50% less bleeding in the first month and 90% less by six months. And, and like pe- people's hemoglobin imp- improves by a significant amount. So it, on paper, it looks great. It's just a, it's an insurance coverage yeah. issue. And it does have some, it does have some side effects. Um, like it increases the risk of getting a blood clot. It can cause some bone loss, which is why you should only take it for two years. So again, it's not the take forever kind of thing. So, right. And if you're someone who, ha- who is, who hormones are contraindicated, it does have hormone in it. So you can't yeah. take that. Right. So if you're someone, if you're a breast cancer survivor, or if you've got like uncontrolled hypertension, or if you have a history of blood clots, you can't use those. Right. Yeah. Anything else uh, we should tell people about what they need to know about fibroids? I think we pretty much covered it. I can't think of anything else like what we missed. I can't think of anything. I did, I did find and kind of looking at there actually is there's a little bit of information out there about acupuncture that acupuncture had like for some people may or may not be helpful. So I thought that was, it's one of those things like that, that whole like, um, what is that like? Is that West, Western medicine, Eastern? I get those two confused, but the whole like <laughs> far, the, like the Asian, yeah. the Asian medicine things, those things, have, there's, there's more out there than we, I think we, we tend to give them credit for. So I think that there's, that's some interesting stuff that may ultimately we may find from that, but I think that that's going to be not yes. near as helpful as the, uh, the medicines we have here and the surgical procedures that we have here. Yes. And I'm into all of that. My husband, when I first started doing, you know, cause I, as you know, I do, I still do traditional gynecology. I don't do the babies anymore, but we do a lot of functional medicine and use supplements and, um, lifestyle, nutrition, like that kind of thing. And people come all the time. Um, Here's one question, because I do a lot of hormone therapy, specifically bioidentical hormone therapy. And people will read that, you know, this could maybe be a estrogen progesterone dominance thing. And can I just take progesterone for my fibroids? And I love natural progesterone. That's a whole other topic of kind of what that does for women in the perimenopause. But I have yet to see giving somebody natural progesterone have a significant effect on their fibroids. No, I haven't either. And I think that what well, I think the the medicines that are out there that are not currently FDA, FDA approved might even be anti progesterone medicines. Exactly. So even though that's kind of I kind of read about that or learn about that in some of my functional medicine, bioidentical hormone courses, and maybe that's like what you do to prevent it. But after you get it, it's not going to treat it. And I've just never no, seen it in real life. It. So maybe that's kind of a good thing of kind of what you mentioned of how to prevent it, of exercise, limiting alcohol, like, cause all those kind of things do have some of an effect on estrogen, your overall estrogen burden. So I don't know, maybe there's some thought process behind that, but otherwise well, treating that would make people. Sense. Yeah. So just a hypothetical thing. The only thing I thought about is what about cancer? is what do you talk to people about or what do you say to your patients about because although these are almost always benign there is still a risk of them having some cancerous cells in them so the chance of them having something called a leiomyosarcoma 
which is the cancerous version of these, is incredibly small, but you're right, not zero. Um, so that's why I think some of it is is age-related. So the leiomyosarcomas are more common in older people um, than they are. They're not common in 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, and even like the, I think you're kind of early 40-year-olds. But as you get some, as you get someone in the late 40s, 50s, and beyond, then you're, you're by, by this, the cancer's version is more common. Like you shouldn't get a new fibroid in someone who is menopausal. That doesn't make any sense. Um, rapid growth of them is also concerning. They're they're kind of kind of slow lumbering things, they don't tend to grow quickly. So that if they do, that's something that makes you concerned that this is a cancer and it shouldn't stay in there. Ultimately, the only way to know for sure is to take it out. Yeah. Yeah, there's no there's no way to biopsy it or like a pre-op, like let me get a biopsy to make sure this is benign. So. Right. How many- Luckily not common how many leiomyosarcomas or cancer, fibroid cancers have you ever seen in your career? I don't, I, I, my bet is it's one. Yeah, I've, I, I've had one. Yeah, I think I've had one and I want to say it, might, it was probably in residency. I don't think I've had one in 25 years of private practice. Interesting. Because when you actually like read the studies, because we used to with big fibroids or I don't know about you, but I used to use a device called a morselator is do these surgeries robotically or laparoscopically and then put this device in through one of the tiny little holes and it would like literally chop the uterus up in little pieces to be able to get it out through a, you know, one centimeter incision and there was a, a woman who, I can't remember if she was a doctor or her husband was a doctor or both. And she had that procedure and it ended up being cancer, which, you know, it's not a good thing when you chop up cancer inside the body. And so the uh, those devices were kind of taken off the market or we weren't allowed to use them at our hospital anymore. And there was all this news about the risk of cancer being I don't know, one in 300. I'm like, how is that possible? I've seen it once in my life. I'm with you on that. I, I certainly missed that instrument. It, it really, it was, it was so nice to be able to use that at the time of surgery. And now we can still do that similarly, but now you've got to put in that five to six centimeter like, incision down by the C-section scar and you have to put in this protective bag and you have to cut into pieces in the bag you're right for that, that relative. I, it doesn't make sense to me that it's one in 300 because I certainly haven't seen that. Yeah, I have you read those numbers know, though? Have you read I those, kind those of numbers? Them? Yeah. And yeah, I, don't I even, just don't I, see it. Well, I'm in, a, like, so I'm in a group of doctors. There's, there's 12 of us and I haven't heard any of them talking about their, oh my gosh, this leiomyosarcoma that I didn't know I was going to have. Yeah, same. But yet with every just, hysterectomy, we're doing all those additional steps. Right. To get, to get big fibroids out. So on that note, if you have somebody that just wants to like, I don't want to do anything. Are you, how, how often are you repeating an ultrasound to follow it just to make sure they're not growing rapidly or are you? I, well, again, look, if someone's in their early thirties and they're there and they, I, then I, I, I'm just going to see them at their exam next year and just do an exam I just tend to rely on my pelvic exams. And if, if over a year or so, the pelvic exam seems like the uterus seems bigger, then I'll get an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I don't, I like I don't follow, I don't follow my, I don't follow fibroids with ultrasounds on a regular basis. Yeah. It depends if, if it, their exam is limited, maybe their BMI or they're Correct. over an ideal body mm-hmm. weight and their exam is limited. I will maybe do an ultrasound just once in six months. And then if it's normal at six months, then I don't continually follow those. That but makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. No cookbook. So interesting to see what you do. Um, all right. I think we covered it. Hopefully this was helpful to y'all. If you have fibroids, have had fibroids, have friends that have fibroids. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Her. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and the web. Go to www.dramybrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material, or links are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical issues or diagnoses that they may have and should seek medical advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.